Hi, I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host of A Public Affair. We love creating this public space for in-depth conversations about education, ecology, food, and so much more. To keep these conversations going, we need your support. Go to wortfm.org slash donate. Thank you. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribe. Everyone who donated to WRT during the fall pledge drive. If you missed it and want to support the community conversations we create here at WRT, you can still donate on our website, wortfm.org. There's an orange banner on the top of the page. We really appreciate you helping out to keep this work here of community-sponsored radio going. Yesterday, October 15th, was National Pregnancy and Infant Loss Remembrance Day. According to a World Health Organization 2023 report, roughly one in six adults worldwide experience infertility. In the U.S., it's estimated that 61% of women with infertility do not tell their close family and friends about their infertility. Breaking this silence around reproductive grief is the focus of a new multi-genre book called Infertilities, a Curation, edited by Elizabeth Horn, Maria Novotny, and Robin Silverglide. The book features painting, portrait, poetry, creative nonfiction, graphic narratives, mixed media, and photographs of sculpture and three-dimensional art. All of these forms are unified, the editors write, by the power of personal narrative to counter misconceptions about infertility and infertile individuals. Currently, there's an exhibit featuring art from infertilities from this book at the North Shore Wellness Collective in Milwaukee until November 3rd. Joining me to talk today about this moving, multifaceted book is one of its editors and contributors, Maria Novotny. Maria has been collaborating with her co-editors on the art of infertility since 2014, which is a national arts organization that curates exhibits all over the country that portray the realities, pains, and joys of living with infertility. The organization also designs curricula for art and writing workshops, organizes events, and advocates for infertility rights. And we'll talk a lot more about the work of the art of infertility nationally, uh, as well as this book today. And I'm excited to have with me to talk about it, Maria Novotny, who is a co-founder and co-director of the Art of Infertility and assistant professor of English at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Welcome to A Public Affair, Maria. Hi, thank you, Douglas. And welcome, listeners. We'd love for you to join our conversation. If you have a question for my guest or want to share an experience with us, please do give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. We'd love to have uh, many people, many voices in this conversation today. So, Maria, um, we'll get into the book here in a little bit, but um, first of all, I'd love for you to share with us a little bit about uh, how you and your collaborators came to devote much of your professional lives, as we were talking before the show, over the past decade, uh, about this issue of reproductive loss, and and that'll bring us to the book itself, but I think it's important uh, for everybody to have a sense of uh, how this project came to be and what the issues are that you're really tackling here. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, so 
like you said in the introduction, uh, we've been doing this Art of Infertility project, which is a traveling um, arts and storytelling organization um, that collects pieces of art and creative writing created by those who have lived with infertility or recurrent reproductive loss. And we have been fortunate enough to kind of curate a variety of community exhibitions of this work in a variety of different cities. So like you said, right now we have an exhibit up in Milwaukee for the month of October, um, but we've been in cities like Philadelphia, Los Angeles, um, Seattle as well. Um, and really the idea of these exhibitions is to make visible um, what is reproductive loss and grief. Um, so often, I think in our culture, we're really great at celebrating um, pregnancy, celebrating new life. Um, but we really don't have a dialogue or a discourse um, that's expansive enough to cover reproductive loss as well. So um, my my co-editors and, and collaborators, Elizabeth and I, I and Robin um, started this about 10 years ago. Elizabeth and I had our own experiences with um, infertility as did Robin. And we met basically all living in Michigan at the time. I was in grad school, Elizabeth was living um, and working at the University of Michigan and Robin was at Michigan State University where I was also going to grad school. And we were running peer-led support groups. Um, so we had really no plans to kind of create this thing, um, but we were finding that it was really helpful for um, individuals who were going through infertility at the time, including ourselves, to be creating pieces, especially when so much of infertility and reproductive loss is experiences of your coming to terms with your body not being able to create the very thing, right, that you want to make. Um, and so we were fortunate enough to really develop a network of individuals through this larger organization called Resolve, the National Infertility Association, and be invited to um, develop this into a larger project. And the book came about largely because COVID and the pandemic, and we couldn't actually go right to um, two cities around the US. And so we decided we had this archive of over 200 pieces of art in various storage units in Wisconsin and Milwaukee um, and Michigan. And we decided, you know, let's actually make this into a project that can be more accessible. So that's where the book came to be. Thanks, Maria. That uh, was a lovely way for us to get into uh, how you all came to this work and its importance. Let's talk a little bit more for folks um, to learn a little bit more about this issue of reproductive loss. Many people obviously have experienced it in a personal way, but many people might not know that much about it. Uh, and in particular, your book does such a great job of highlighting the diversity of people who face this issue in one way or another. Give us a brief overview of the reproductive loss issues that you're trying to um, garner attention to here? Yeah, I mean, so for one, the title of the book is called Infertilities, and that's intentional. So my background, my area of expertise actually with this is I come at it from a rhetoric perspective. So I really am interested and invested in the language around infertility and what it means to be diagnosed and to be labeled with that identity. So infertilities is explicitly plural. It's meant to be more inclusive in terms of um, understanding that there are a range of different diagnoses by which you might experience and come to terms with an infertility um, 
diagnosis. Um, but there are also multiple different ways in which you may resolve or come to a resolution with your infertility. So infertility, for instance, we know um, can sometimes be one third of female factor issues. So that might be through um, having underlying conditions like endometriosis, polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, various issues like that diminished ovarian reserve. You might also um, come to an infertility diagnosis if you're in a relationship with a male partner. Um, so that might be azospermia where there's no sperm. There might be um, male factor mobility issues in terms of the sperm actually getting to up through the fallopian tube to the egg. Um, and then one third is also a combination of both, um, male factor, female factor, but also a combination or maybe just being unexplained infertility. So not knowing the exact cause. And a lot of that is also simply because there's a lot more research that needs to happen around infertility. But within those kind of buckets, right, what's not included, obviously, right, are um, same-sex individuals or partners that want to kind of need to rely on fertility services in order to have a child, a biological child, um, or even single persons who want a child. So Robin, um, one of the editors of the book, for instance, is a single parent by choice um, and needed to um, have access, right, to donor sperm in order to uh, conceive their child. Um, and so there are lots of different reasons you know, October is also um, cancer awareness, right? And so having a cancer diagnosis, mm -hmm. for instance, um, you can be, you know, suddenly finding yourself needing to think about fertility preservation and what you might do um, if you're diagnosed early on, right, in your reproductive years with cancer. Um, so there's a, a wide spectrum. Um, and really what we're trying to underline by the diversity of not just the mediums, but the diversity by which all of these contributors have their own individual connection to infertility, that infertility doesn't discriminate. It's really, um, it's really just a misunderstood uh, story, right? That this is a white woman's issue. That's simply just not the case anymore. Right. And um, I want to follow up on that in particular, because in the introduction, um, you and your co-editors talk specifically about the disproportionate impacts of fertility on people of color um, specifically. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So like I was saying, there, there's this larger narrative, right, that this is just a white woman's issue. Um, but we know for, in fact, that women of color disproportionately experience infertility, um, for instance, uh, ovarian individuals with ovarian cysts um which often frequently happen in with women of color um can contribute heavily to an infertility diagnosis um and we also just know that simply women of color don't have the same networks or rely on the same networks of support to be talking about this there's still larger socio-cultural um stigma around uh you know, an infertility diagnosis, right? And so ideas of um, like the welfare mama and um, ideas that black and brown women can get pregnant easily um, simply just are not the case. And this book is again, trying to really um, interrogate and call that to attention um, in order to make it again, more inclusive and to create spaces by which um, we're representing all experiences of infertility. Absolutely. And you just mentioned a couple of myths or, or taboos there um, surrounding infertility. And that's another explicit purpose of the book is to counter some taboos and myths. Um, what are some other sort of narratives that are out there about infertility that the book is trying to address? 
Yeah, so one common one is uh, this idea, right, just adopt. Um, so, oh, you have an infertility diagnosis, you can just adopt a baby. They're all babies that we that we need to adopt. Um, we're trying to call that uh, explicitly out. I, for instance, for my family through a domestic adoption, that domestic adoption cost me $40,000 in the state of Wisconsin. So the idea that simply that we have um, equal access to this is not is not true um, or simply like oh well you'll use fertility treatment and you'll go through a round of in vitro fertilization ivf that will get you pregnant um again ivf um, especially in the state of wisconsin there's no insurance mandate um so that means often uh, you're paying out of pocket for your medications and for ivf treatment um, that can be up to twenty thousand dollars also on top of that, most IVF cycles the first time don't work. Um, and so again, you can be up to $40,000 immediately if you have two rounds of IVF in the state of Wisconsin. So those are some of those taboos. Also simply like, you know, this idea of like, we, I think we call it pulling the goalie, right? Um, and ideas of masculinity wrapped up um, with, with men in particular and the ways in which those ideas of masculinity also create really isolating conditions for male partners um, who are trying to support female partners or for um, simply men who are trying to, you know, navigate what it's like to maybe have, you know, no sperm and, and figure out ways to talk about this and process that identity. Um, that can, again, be really isolating. And we're trying to create this larger community of support um, where we kind of counter a lot of those taboos. Yeah, and the book itself, which we're going to dive into here in a minute, has so many moving stories of the ways in particular that those myths and taboos can be uh, not only personally destructive, but destructive of relationships, whether they're same-sex or heterosexual relationships as well. Um, it really brings the, the difficulty of the ways taboos manifest into people's lives or myths manifest into people's lives out into the open in a very moving way. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. My name is Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with Professor Maria Novotny, who is the co-editor of a moving new book called Infertilities, A Curation, about experiences of infertility and the role of the arts in helping create conversation and community around this subject. We'd really appreciate you joining the conversation today with your questions or experiences you'd like to share. We are open to hearing lots of voices here on this issue that affects so many people. Please do give us a call at 608 256 2001, extension 9. So, um, I noted in the introduction of the book, uh, you and your co-editors also uh, said that this is the book we wished we would have had when we were in the thick of infertility. Um, what do you hope this book provides for people um, in all kinds of different situations, Maria? Yeah, so um, I've lived with infertility for over 10 years, and I will say the conversation and awareness about infertility has generally improved. Um, you know, there are more public representations of this. Think of like Michelle Obama when she disclosed that her two children were created through um, fertility treatment. Um, those types of public disclo disclosures I simply were not there um, back in like 2011, 2013, when mm -hmm. I was going through the thick of it, um, you would say. Um, but 
really also this book is something that we really hope is not just for the infertility community, for those going through it. I mean, while it provides, I think, a sense of support and, you know, a recognition where maybe you can see a version of your story in one of the pieces of art or in one of the creative um, writing pieces. It's also a book that I think does important work in terms of communicating those highly emotional, difficult experiences with friends and other loved ones and family members who may know um, to an extent of that you're going through treatment or that you're having trouble conceiving. Um, but for those who simply don't have trouble forming their families, it can be really difficult to navigate, you know, how do I tell my good friend, oh, I'm pregnant, but I know that they're having, you know, a really hard time getting pregnant. Or I know that my sister, you know, she she just had like another child or how can I ha invite them to my child, like the niece or nephew's first birthday, for instance. Mm -hmm. This is a book that we're really hoping that we can also give to those family and friends um, so that they can, again, maybe recognize the variety of ways in which an infertility diagnosis, it doesn't just end um, with a treatment or end with a successful baby. It's something that really is constantly marking your life. Um, for instance, like I said, I adopted my child, but I still am navigating questions about, you know, individuals who are well-meaning simply asking, you know, oh, does, does your daughter have another sibling? And I say, no. And then they say, oh, or do you, are you planning on having another sibling? And then me again, being confronted, how much do I want to disclose? Mm -hmm. Like she's adopted, et cetera. Right. Um, so these are just things that again, well-intentioned, um, but they simply don't go away, even though I've formed my family. Right. So we're hoping for that. And then also just for, you know, physicians and nurses as well. Um, there's so many, again, well-meaning physicians and nurses when you're going through treatment, but they simply, I think there's a disconnect with what it means when a treatment fails um, and how to actually provide the adequate amount of support um, to those patients. So, yeah. Yeah. So a wide audience, really, of people that you're trying to reach. And, and that is so important. What you're describing is uh, not only providing an avenue through the arts and for people to see their stories told, but for people who support and care about people who are dealing with this issue to be able to understand it better. And it's clear that that comes through in the book. I want to talk uh, about a couple of terms that that get used in the book that um, you and your co-editors point out early on, that the, there are double meanings to these terms, art and or ART and IF, which are in, in caps early in the book and in the title of the organization, the art of infertility that this book springs from as well. So what are the double meanings of art here for you that are operating in this book? So there's a visual component, like there there are the connotations of blood, for instance, and that's simply because that's a reality, right? It's to underscore, right? Infertility isn't, again, like this elitist type of condition. There's, it's, med it's a medical disease. There are experiences where you need a, a doctor, right? Um, but also intimate in terms of the the real stress distance the graphic like honestly like anger that can be experienced mm -hmm. um within it and then the third section is something that we felt adamant about um including and making sure it was clear is kind of like this idea of a play on a resolution or success story right so so often you might even hear or see like in newspapers or magazines but you might see on social media too ideas of like rainbow babies right and so 
after the storm, here comes your rainbow, right? And this was something that we also wanted to push back against a little bit because for so many people, that rainbow baby never comes. Um, and it's great if it does, but again, even if it does come, you still are wrestling with, again, what it means to still have this infertility experience that marks the ways in which you formed your family and still continues right to ask additional questions of how you might continue forming or adding on to your family. Um, and so it was really important, again, to represent a variety of different ways by which people come to a resolution and the ways in which people really negotiate that identity. So for instance, you might start off in the beginning of your infertility cycle and be like, you know what, we're having a biological child. This is so important. We're going to go through and do as many IVFs as, as we can, as we can financially afford, because we want that biological child. And then through this, understand, for instance, that maybe, you know, there are actual reasons why you can't actually carry a child. And so maybe you actually have to go back and revise. Are, is it still important to have that biological connection? Do you need to perhaps use, can you even afford like a surrogate um, or, you know, is adoption or is child free, right? Something else to be considering. And so we're really, again, trying to represent that because I think it, too often we pair infertility as this beatable type of disease, almost as you would with cancer. And it's just not, it's just not fair to do that because it doesn't really fully encapsulate what so many individuals and couples are going through um, in terms of, again, always doing that renegotiation of what, what may actually work this time. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. You've just been hearing my guest Maria Navatny talking about her new book co-edited with uh, Robin Silberglide and Elizabeth Horn called Infertilities, A Curation, which uh, has artistic representations of infertility and really promotes the role of the arts in helping create conversations and community around that subject. We'd love for you to join our conversation with questions or experiences. You can give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. I also want to take this chance to thank people again for contributing to WRT over this recent fall pledge drive and remind you that if you did not have the chance to make a donation, you still have the opportunity online. You go to wrtfm.org and click on the orange banner at the top of the page. That'll help us keep the programs that you appreciate here at WRT going. So we're going to return, uh, Maria, to the book itself and mm -hmm. talk a little bit more um, about the different uh, versions of endings that you were just talking about a little bit there and how the book purposely presents all kinds of endings to infertility stories um, and different identities that emerge from those different endings as well. Are there a few that you'd like to sort of highlight as examples of different endings? Uh, we don't have to dive into them in, in depth, but just, you know, different versions of endings that stand out to you that are represented in the collection. Yeah. So, for instance, um, one one is Elizabeth Horn. So this is my, um, my collaborator and my co-editor. So, Elizabeth, the last image that you get in this book is Elizabeth's now, in our Art of IF world, iconic um, image crib with medication boxes. Mm -hmm. So for listeners out there, imagine um, viewing a small crib that you put an infant in. Um, it actually is wrapped in um, like late 1970s 
foresty deer fabric, which Elizabeth intentionally picked out because Elizabeth was born in the late 1970s mm-hmm. and it mirrors the the sheets that their her parents used. Um, and then within the crib is then a whole IVF cycle that was Elizabeth. So um, all of the medications that led up to ultimately Elizabeth's failed IVF cycle. Um, that's a really powerful image. I mean, um, so many people have said that simply like the, an empty crib alone would be just would be impactful, but to have all of the medications within it and then on top of it, um, Elizabeth discloses that there was a $10,000 price tag just for those medications, not even um, the fertility treatment. So the idea, right, of this is the way in which her story kind of ended with infertility is not a take-home baby, right? Um, but ultimately some some debt, right, and a lot of pain. So that's one example. Um, another example is Noah Moskin and Maya Gabrell's, um collaborative photo round and round the merry-go-round um and this one is really impactful um if you google noah moskin and maya grobel they actually noah is a is a film producer um and maya is a mental health counselor and we've known them personally through this project but they created this wonderful documentary called one more shot so you can stream on like vimeo or whatever um but that basically chronologued like their whole journey to parenthood um and round and round the marigold is kind of like this this ending image of their now daughter that they're raising but their daughter that was created through embryo donation and if you know their story and if you view that documentary that was not at all their path whatsoever so again it shows the ways in which all of these different revisions had to happen in order right to to have a child and then you have someone like a mother by another name with this jenny ruff's um creative writing piece and jenny ultimately never she's a mother by another name because she never actually became a mother right so this idea of being childless kind of by choice but also not really by choice by circumstance in some ways um so again providing a gamut um providing experiences of couples of of what success looks like and what it doesn't look like um relationships that work that don't work etc yeah so many different stories and that's part of what makes this so powerful and i'm thinking about that crib image in particular with the boxes of medications piled up and syringes and it's such a concrete way to represent uh the legacy of this experience right it it doesn't go away it stays with you Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, and it's such a contrast to, again, some people might see on social media, like there's always image, frequently images of like um, uh, a ultrasound um, of an image, right, of a a, a fetus that's been Mm -hmm. conceived with all these different syringes in a heart, right? So this idea that, look, this is like my this is like my rainbow baby, right? And yet for Elizabeth with all the syringes just in the crib, it's just an explicit counter to that idea of of not failure, not hope, but just the realities Reality. of, mm-hmm. of, the, of the grief, right? Yeah, uh, another image uh, that she, or a piece, an image of a piece of hers that's in the book is this um, piece called Cousins, mm-hmm. which is this delicate little nest almost image of, it's mixed media, but wires with, um, maybe you know more about the materials, but there are sort of four figures in this mm-hmm. little nest 
and uh, they represent the sense of isolation or loss she feels when she sees, uh, I, I don't remember if it's her nieces or nephews or both, and, both. And, and the ways that she thinks about the children that did not join those or the cousins that were not to be, right? Yeah, so I can speak a little bit to yeah. this because I've known her for so long and I've, I've heard her tell this story, but um, there was a moment, right, where um, she has a couple nieces and nephews and she was at her parents' house and they were lining up, um, I think it was around the holidays or something or a sleepover of some sort and they, her mom was going to take a picture um, and Elizabeth saw them all there and she couldn't help but think about she she was able to conceive two twins but lost them ultimately um and think about the fact that her twins weren't there and so this idea of of nesting and what it means to nest um she had all these ideas right of of what it would be like to integrate her child her children with with her sister's children um and that idea of loss and also how her mom was so excited, right, to take this picture and how it brought Elizabeth so much sadness, too, mm -hmm. in that experience while everyone else was feeling so happy to be together as a family. Um, the nest itself is also very small, like it can fit in the palm of your hand intentionally, like a real size nest. And Elizabeth really likes working um, in small mediums. I mean, the crib is an exception, but in smaller mediums, because she likes people to kind of um, have to get up close to it to see the intimacy of of that experience and so um she works with a lot of smaller pieces like that uh, to kind of again bring people close in on this intimate almost secret that she's sharing mm -hmm. What I think is so powerful about art in particular in helping people respond to experiences of reproductive losses allows people to sit with the experience. You know, somebody, if a, uh, Elizabeth might have just recounted casually to a relative or a friend what that felt like, that family situation, somebody initially might not know how to respond, right, or, or not might not be able to connect with that sense of loss that in what otherwise might seem like a joyful moment of family togetherness, right? Uh -huh. But but seeing that image allows you to inhabit Elizabeth's experience in such a profound way. Yeah, that's so great. And as you were talking, um, it made me think also that there's, with the art, there's a permanency to it. Like there's a permanency to that, to that loss and to the grief as well, um, so that it can't just simply be erased with an apology, right? It's something that's like sitting and and needs to always be returned, or it's always being returned to yeah. because it's just the different ways in which um, family life and ideas of what it means to, to not be able to have a family um, are always intersecting. This is such a um, multifaceted, multi-genre collection, and um, just like art allows us to sit with experiences and approach them differently, I mean, all the different forms of art here allow different angles, different perspectives, and different ways of experiencing reproductive loss. And we've talked a little bit about visual art here. There's also nonfiction, personal narratives, and there's lots of poetry as well. And um, I would love for you to share with us one of these poems. There are some really incredible artful uh, poems in this collection that allow access to complicated experiences and emotions surrounding reproductive loss. And one of them is Marjorie Maddox's poem, A Dog Is Not a Baby, or It Is. Uh, so you can hear just in the title the complexity there of, of emotion and associations. Um, could you read that one for us, please, Maria? Yeah, I'll be happy to. Um, and share share what you know about it, is, if you'd like. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, so um, Marjorie uh, has worked closely. So Robin Silberglide, my other co-editor, um, she is a professor of creative writing at Michigan State University. Um, and so Robin also works on issues of um, motherhood, queer motherhood, single single parent motherhood, um, and has written a lot about it. So Robin actually is responsible for having Marjorie contribute um, this piece because of her, just her network. Um, but I will read it for you all um, and do my best. Uh, obviously, Marjorie would do better, but I'll do what I can. So this is A Dog Is Not A Baby, or It Is. Just yesterday, outside our house, a woman pushed a terrier in a baby carriage. Just yesterday, a woman pushed out a baby in our house. Her terrier is jealous. I am jealous of your carriage, your baby, your terrier, your house, your yesterdays, and push you out. A poem is not an essay, or it is, waiting to be pushed outside the house of lines. Come to me, little poem, little terrier. Inside the house is a warm carriage. Inside a carriage is a house of yesterdays, pushing you into an essay on babies. My sister is there with her terrier, waiting outside our house for a child. Ride the carriage of yesterday with your terrier into my house of now. Just yesterday is every day, waiting. A dog is not a baby. So thank you for sharing that, Maria. Uh, yeah. You want to start with what what you hear there, what resonates with you? So I think what's so wonderful about this piece is that it really is pushing again on the ways in which writing, like the ability to reflect um, on those, again, everyday experiences of just seeing, for instance, a stroller or a carriage, right, being pushed against um, or walking outside. I remember seeing being triggered off and like going to the grocery store and seeing um, infant carriers uh, in grocery carts and just feeling totally overwhelmed, not even knowing this person, right? And Marjorie clearly doesn't know this person either. Um, but this sense of unintentional pain that 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 causes um but what i love about it is that she also draws the reader into the ways in which right writing about it is a way um to to work through that experience to recognize it to name it to claim it mm -hmm. um but then also to heal through it and so there seems to be a lot of power in that and i love that about it absolutely power while also not erasing the pain, okay. right? I mean, close to the end of the poem is that word waiting there, which is such a mm -hmm. loaded word when you're talking about fertility, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and it, yeah, super, super complex. And then the, the issues with, you know, dogs and dogs as children playing into that as well as also adds us this whole nother complex layer of meaning there and uh, associations and potential you know, yeah, ickiness yeah. a little bit, right? In the sense of like wanting to connect with other people's joys, but also feeling, like you said, pained by them or triggered by them. Right, right, right. And so just, again, I think the idea that you can use writing to, to claim those experiences, to make those experiences become visible because for so many, you know, for the woman walking, it's not like that's clear to her whatsoever. Um, right. But that's the ways in which write, writing or, or artistic representation can be so powerful for these experiences of, of reproductive loss. Absolutely. 
My name is Douglas Haynes. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM, and I'm talking with Professor Maria Novotny, who is the co-editor of a new book called Infertilities, a curation about experiences of infertility and the role of the arts in helping create conversations and community around this subject. There's still time to connect with us here. If you have a question or comment you'd like to share, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9, before the top of the hour. So, Maria, I'd like to turn uh, in the time we have left to a little bit of the wider implications of this work. We might call them the political implications or the social implications mm-hmm. that you talk about in the introduction in particular, but it's it's there mm-hmm. all throughout the collection. Um, and in particular, you and your co-editors talk about the urgency of highlighting infertility stories in the wake of the U.S. Supreme Court's reversal of mm-hmm. Roe versus Wade. Tell us more about that and that urgency. Yeah, so I think so often people don't associate right infertility as being um, associated right or needing to be contextualized within reproductive autonomy. But infertility, right, is this desire, right, to have a family and suddenly being encountered with um, with the inability to do so. Um, and so particularly with Roe v. Wade, uh, it's complicated the ways by which women are making fertility decisions. So for instance, if you are someone who has had recurrent loss, um, if you're a high risk pregnancy, and so it's maybe taking you three or four different losses to finally become pregnant through um, an in vitro fertilization cycle, it can be really risky to make a decision to um, go through another in vitro fertilization cycle if you might have another miscarriage and might require some sort of DNC treatment. So if you're living in a state right where access to DNCs or any sort of abortion-related miscarriage services um, are not available, it may actually impair a lot of your fertility decision-making and actually cause into question, right, will I actually get the reproductive health care that I might need if this cycle doesn't work. Um, So that's some of the ways. Other ways are which um, just embryo, access to embryos, for instance, have also been called into question. So I remember when um, the reversal of Roe first happened and in my own infertility like support group network in Wisconsin, for instance, many individuals were seriously considering sending um, their frozen embryos to more fertility-friendly states like Illinois, for instance, because they were afraid that there might be a potential by which um, any access or storing of embryos would have to be destroyed um, simply because um, there might be bills that put forward um, ideas of personhood, right? So this idea that um, an embryo becomes a person, right? Um, at at the embryo stage. And so what would it mean to uh, have these things in, you know, frozen, frozen uh, storage units, for instance. And so um, that's a lot of what this issue is. But I think ultimately, what we're trying to call attention to is that if you understand reproductive justice through Sister Song's definition, that's a right to have children, um, or not have children, but really the right to raise children and have a family in safe, sustainable communities, that's an infertility issue right mm-hmm. right there like the desire to have a family is something that um, we're really trying to 
uh, support. It's a pro-family issue. Um, and I would say for listeners that are listening from Wisconsin specifically, right? Like in Wisconsin, we simply don't have a state mandate allowing access and equitable access to fertility treatment. So um, what we're doing is you can Google the Building Families Alliance of Wisconsin, which I'm a steering team member of, um, and we're trying to introduce fertility-friendly legislation um, that's really, again, pro-family and trying to make it more equitable for those living in the state um, to form their families without the financial hardship of, can I actually afford another round mm-hmm. of treatment? Um, and so... We should be introducing new legislation for that uh, in early November, which will be really exciting on the state level. Yeah, thanks for telling us about that. And um, what are some of the other barriers that you would like to highlight for those seeking medical assistance with reproduction uh, that comes up again and again in this collection as well? Yeah, so obviously there are financial barriers. Um, They're also just simply... For instance, that you started the show citing that there's one in six um, people, right, who are experiencing infertility. We know that that number is actually likely higher. Um, those are the people, right, that are getting an infertility diagnosis. But because there's so many barriers um, to even affording or considering or thinking of yourselves as someone who could potentially be a fertility patient, there are many people who simply just assume they could never afford infertility um, treatment that never enter a fertility clinic. So that's another barrier. We simply just don't have the real statistics to represent um, the vast majority who are experiencing you know, issues in child child formation. Um, there's also issues with surrogacy. Surrogacy costs a lot of money. Um, and for you know, the queer LGBTQ couples who might need a surrogate, for instance, to carry a child, that can be very costly. So there are other issues, right, in terms of, again, just, the ability to have um, IVF and the ability to afford it doesn't also mean that you are able to actually right, use it. Um, you might also have to pay for a surrogate. Um, I said my own story right with adoption. Um, a domestic, I used an agency in Madison. That cost me $40,000. Um, people, you know, and I wouldn't trade it for the world, but it is just a real actual cost. Um, so those are all multiple different barriers that I think cause a lot of um added emotional stress to one navigating what you're going to do to build your family, but also like the stress that happens in relationships. So often this is a relationship decision um, and really figuring out the ways in which you're going to move forward with any sort of decision can, can be really difficult and really isolating because we don't, you know, often talk about like, well, what does it mean? Like, how much are we willing to like remortgage our house, right? In order to pay for this other treatment? Are you really open to adoption? Like, or what's scaring you about it? We simply just don't have, again, a real concrete set of resources to navigate those decisions. Um, But we hope with this book, people will start to realize that and it'll get better. And it intersects with so many other issues hearing you talk about uh, the challenges or these barriers that people um, facing reproductive loss or infertility face. It intersects with so many other ways that um, networks of care just aren't established Mm -hmm. enough in this society or are breaking down. Um, I'm thinking about just sick people as well, right? Or people with cancer and dealing with insurance. And like you said, dealing with um, all these logistical and financial barriers on top of the emotional pain of the reality of what you're dealing with um, is harder than it 
needs to be, or we often make it harder than it needs to be in this society because of the lack of um, focus for institutions of care and providers of care. Exactly. I mean, and I think that's why like the mental health and the need to really um, get mental health support, it really needs to be coupled with any sort of fertility type of treatment, because it's simply not just about um, navigating the physical, physical treatment, but really like navigating what that mental, um, mental anxiety, anguish, pain can be, um, because they're, they, they're related, they're correlate together. Yeah. Well, I want to make sure we have time to end with the art itself again and have you tell us a little bit more about that exhibit that's up in Milwaukee right now and how folks can see it. And uh, is the material in the book also in the exhibit? Tell us more about how we can access this work. Yeah, so folks are welcome to come. It's um, it's the North Shore Wellness Collective. So um, it's just a little bit north of, of Milwaukee, but very close to Lake Michigan and Whitefish Bay. Um, it's open for individuals to pop in and see the art. Many of the pieces of the art um, from the book are there. Um, not all of them, simply because some of we don't necessarily have them all in our possession. Um, but I will say even Nye's work, which are three huge um, murals of, of all repurposed um infertility treatment that kind of create these like biblical images are mm-hmm. there. Um, they're really impactful. They're really powerful. And Eva is going to come um, Friday, November 3rd. Eva, myself, and then Robert Silverglide will be doing um, a book reading and curate, curator talk um, at the North Shore Wellness Collective from seven to nine. So Madison friends are welcome to come to that. Um, Boswell Books will also be having the book there so people can buy the book. Um, And then for friends in the Madison area that maybe can't come, um, November 6th, Erica Meitner, who is at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, is also a contributor of the book, and myself will be at a room of one's own. Um, We'll be doing, again, another book reading um, from 6 until, I believe, 7.30 or so. So friends in the Madison area are welcome to come. um, And, you know, I'll have a few of the pieces of the art on display there as well. So you can see some of them up close and personal, but then you can hear Erica read um, her lovely, lovely piece, a list of true facts. And I'll be there talking a little bit about my work um, as well. So it should be a nice evening. What's the date for that room of one's own reading again, Maria? That's Monday, November 6th at 6 PM. Great. And um, finally, how do you see this work going forward? What are you and your collaborators planning next for the art of infertility? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, You know, we are really trying to think forward. Um, April is always National Infertility Awareness Week. So um, we're trying to, again, think about where we might do some, um, obviously, art and writing workshops. So that's another portion of the book that we I forgot to actually speak to, but we have some prompts in there. Um, and so we're really hoping again to take this a little bit to some universities, quite honestly. Um, so often, right, we think about infertility like not as part of the college experience. And our argument is like sex education really needs to start talking about infertility. So it becomes less of this disoriented um, identity processing when you're in your 30s and you suddenly realize, oh, wait, what? I'm infertile. What does this mean? Oh, wait, I guess it makes sense because I had endometriosis diagnosed when I was 20, you know, X, Y, Z. Um, so we're trying to, again, you know, bring these conversations in at a younger age, um, rooting them in ideas of reproductive justice so that we can be more proactive and do that type of interventional work in terms of 
raising awareness and just honestly, you know, encouraging women and men to be advocates of their own reproductive health. That's Maria Novotny, co-founder and co-director of the Art of Infertility and assistant professor of English at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, also co-editor of the really moving new multi-genre collection, uh, Infertilities, a curation out from Wayne State University Press. Thank you so much for joining me today, Maria. I've really appreciated the conversation. Thanks, Douglas. Me too. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. You've been listening to A Public Affair. If you have appreciated this conversation, please do share it with others through our podcast and consider donating online to make more conversations like this possible at WORT. I'm your host, Douglas Haynes. I'd like to thank today's engineer, Emmett Riley, news director, Shali Pittman, and producer, Jade Isiri Ramos. Thank you, listeners, for joining us today on A Public Affair here at WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. Stay tuned for Madison Book Beat. Today, host Cole Erickson talks with Madison author Allison Townsend about her latest book, The Green Hour, A Natural History of Home. Don't take no prisoners if you can't afford to feed none. Don't start no fights if you cannot predict the outcome. Don't make donations where you cannot get your dough back. The apathetic bull to send them all your Prozac. I will not climb into your telephone tree and hell no, you cannot put me on hold. It's the same recorded message you've been singing all along. Keep handing us the Bible while you're walking off with all the gold. The bureaucratic office sends you merry-go-rounding. While the KKK police the streets by bloodhounding. Interest on the credit card just keeps on compounding. But the FCC can never shut this pirate sound down. I'm indirect with coming, never pre-recorded. With information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted. We come and listen and supported. Live and direct, we come and never pre-recorded. With information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted. We come and listen and supported. Live and direct, we come and never pre-recorded. With information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted. We come and listen and supported. Live and direct, we come and never pre-recorded. With information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted.